0: Hey friends, welcome to the Catalyst Church Podcast. We hope you find peace and grace. In each other. The Psalms
1: last week and today we are starting back up with the Gospel of Mark. Last uh, semester we ended the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6, so today we'll be picking it up in chapter 7. Uh, and we'll be looking at the first chunk of scripture there today. So you're welcome to turn to Mark chapter 7, and we'll get to that in a minute. But while you turn there, I want to remind us about what the gospel of Mark is about. Uh, Mark was written about 30 years after Jesus' uh, resurrection from the dead. And, And it was during a time when Christians were experiencing very violent persecution from Rome. Israel had been forcefully occupied by Rome during this time period. Um, They had experienced like this crazy, harsh taxation. They'd increased this increased uh, instability within their culture. And in every town and every village, uh, Roman soldiers lived there. They walked there. They occupied there. And so the people, the Hebrew people, were losing their autonomy on what it meant to worship God. Or they were in fear of losing it, and so instead of uh, what they did, instead of, of just like letting go of it, is they kind of doubled down even more so on what it meant to be followers of God, to be Hebrew people. They had been praying for and holding out for a military type of rescue in the form of a triumphant king who would come from God. They called this mighty rescuer the Messiah uh, or God's chosen one. And this Messiah in their mind was going to overthrow their oppressors. It was gonna redeem the land back to their people. They knew what to look for. They were confident in who they were looking for. The writer of Mark is thought by historians to be um, the same as John Mark in the book of Acts. Uh, And Mark was the cousin of uh, Barnabas and he was a friend of Peter and Paul, and so there's this experience that you see again and again in the in the scriptures where Mark and Peter are spending time together. Even at one point, Peter it spends the night at his at Mark's mother's house, um, and I can imagine Mark walking along with Peter because Mark didn't know Jesus personally. He never met Jesus. He wasn't one of the disciples, but Peter was, and I can imagine. Mark, after encountering the love of Jesus through Jesus' disciples, specifically through Peter, he probably wanted to know everything he possibly could know about Jesus. And I shared this last time, but I I kind of imagine Mark saying, "Okay, okay, Peter, tell me what Jesus' craziest miracle was. Well, how did the people respond to that? Well, what was the weirdest thing that Jesus did? Okay, so what is it? When did you feel like he loved you? When did you experience that love, Peter? Tell me about Jesus. Peter, I want to know Jesus like you knew Jesus. I need to know Jesus like, like you knew Jesus. And then I wonder if Mark is hearing about Christ and experiencing the love of Jesus in his life that was so transformative. And I wonder if he thought, what if other people don't get to experience firsthand knowledge like I do? What if no one else gets to experience the life of Jesus like I have through Peter. And so he wrote down these words of Jesus. He wanted it to be an opportunity for other disciples to come around. But the whole thing about Mark, Mark is written towards a, a Gentile audience, a non-Jewish audience. And it seems like Mark, the entire time he's writing these stories down, he's wanting to create a shift in expectation So where the people expected the Messiah to come on a war horse and military power, Mark shows that that is not how the Messiah came. Instead, the Messiah showed up in the form of a suffering servant. And I wonder if Mark just needed to create these sorts of narratives that caused such a disruption in his mind, in his expectations, he needed to write the same things down for anybody else who might be able to read. And I think what I see throughout scriptures and what I've experienced in my own life is that God is always breaking apart our expectations and causing like a major disruption in our lives because God is constantly wanting to make us new. We get stuck in ruts. We get stuck doing the same things. Worship looks a specific way. You can't add anything in. You can't take anything out. I remember when I was a a child and I was at my parents' church and we were at church all the time. I like lived at the church. And this new pastor came in and he was there for a couple years, but he was still new, even though he was there for a few years. But he was like, we need to shift things up a little bit. And so they created like the contemporary service and the traditional service. That way everybody's comfortable in how they worship God and no one like had their feathers ruffled too much. But I remember this one time he's like, no one plays the organ anymore. The organ needs to go. It should just be removed. You guys, the church almost split over an organ. And it wasn't like, there weren't like, like big, you know, pipes or anything like that. It was just an electrical box that had a use in a beautiful way at a certain season. And it was no longer useful. And he mentioned it. And instead, people were going to just rip apart their relationships over a piece of an instrument. They were willing to go to the grave for this traditional piece. I was talking to a friend of mine this week. She's a Catholic woman and uh, there are some people in her parish that have wanted to start a Latin chant sort of choir in their mass. And so they've begun to build this choir singing Latin chants. Latin was the only language spoken or read in the Roman Catholic Church until the 1960s when they decided that it was no longer an obligation. But for the past 50 years, the language has not been in Latin. It's been whatever the language is that the church is located in. A new tradition has been brought about. Even though that old tradition, they probably had a lot of fights about. Should we do that? Should we don't? I don't know. Latin is God's language, apparently. So we got to like keep it in Latin. 50 years, no Latin or very limited Latin. And then she starts this choir with her friends And the church, much of the church is like so uncomfortable with this new thing that they're doing by singing in Latin. We get stuck in the way we do things. Religious traditions. Are so helpful. They are so good. They can become spiritual disciplines to help us recenter our attention back to the ways of God, but they can also become their own form of idolatry and their own form of legalism. So, okay. What kind of religious traditions have you experienced in your own life that you have found really helpful or hindering? Anybody have anything or they've experienced like a church Imploding upon itself because of the changes that happen. Anybody experience this? Yeah, Martha
0: Well, I was born Catholic, and like one of the things that I always um, and I, every time I pass by St. Mary's, I go there because it just feels like home. You know. Yeah. But, um, I like the 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 piece of you know just having this like structure that you know it's like for the whole the whole sermon or whatever. And so it's peaceful, like you mm-hmm. kind of know what to expect. Totally. And then you kneel down and then just like, you know, doing this. Mm-hmm. It's something that I still do. Yeah. Like when I pass by or I just kneel down, it's like, it's something about kneeling down, humbling myself, you know, and being on my knees. And I remember going there recently and my knees were hurting and I was like, oh my God, these elders are like on their knees. Um, yeah. So it just reminded me, you know, of that, like, just like a practice kind of like running, you know, like it's not for everyone, but it's just like totally. that self-regulating.
1: Right. So those traditions have helped ground you in many ways. Yes. Anybody else have anything that was that is a tradition that you that you have adopted as your own? It might not even be in the Bible. Like the Bible doesn't say to cross yourself. But yet that is something that brings people a sense of grounding in their relationship with God. Anybody else experience anything like that? Yeah, Ashley. Uh,
0: when I was younger, I was, well, I was in fact Baptist Catholic when my family went, so I would go to Catholic church
1: with
0: my friends, mm-hmm. and uh, we were, I wasn't allowed to take communion because, like, I was Catholic, so now it's, like, a little weird for me to have a yeah. communion because, like, even though I am baptized my Catholic, but, like, just Christian, like, it's weird for me to take communion because I'm so used to, like, oh, I can't take it, you
1: know? Right. Yeah, that could be a, a harder tradition that is upheld in that church where it makes it so other Christians can't participate in communion the same way as if you're if you're baptized Catholic, or you went through confirmation. Yeah, Allie? Um, the Sabbath has both been a really beautiful
0: ritual, mm-hmm. but then also I grew up in um, Iowa where there are some communities where it's like, if you're mowing on Sunday, you know, church elders would come to your home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dang. And it literally still happens in some parts of the country. <laughs> and I also thought about just both, it's so helpful, but then also for me, shame-inducing and guilt-inducing of, um, to, to read your Bible on a daily basis. That was something that was very important in the church I was raised in. Right. And there's been seasons where I was people. Yeah. And
1: there's also... Been
0: is guilt-inducing or this
1: checkbox mentality mm. been unhelpful at the same time. right right where where things that are actually really edifying to the spirit of your in within yourself becomes something that brings guilt or shame into your life where it's not meant to be that way but it, it happens to go that way yeah karen
0: i know that in some churches speaking in tongues is meaningful mm-hmm. and accepted and I've never experienced it so
1: for me that would be a tradition that would be new. be new. Yeah. And that's a great perspective to see different traditions as not something to be afraid of but something that could be new. And it might not be for everybody but yet there are certain things that work for some people and don't work for others. There's a is there a picture that we could put up of that hermit crab? Definitely. All right. So I posted this on Facebook or on uh, Instagram this morning but This is a a painter that I admire named Scott the Painter, Scott Erickson. And the, the context for this is that if you know anything about a hermit crab, they'll make anything their home. But sometimes as they grow, they grow out of their home. And it's important to see for the hermit crab that that shell is not its home. Its home is the entire ocean. And so oftentimes we get so focused into like what it looks like to be a follower of jesus not recognizing that jesus is vast and beyond every expression encompassing every expression but yet beyond every expression i just think that that's an important thing to be aware of but just that sense of like well worship is something that looks differently for so many different people all right any last thoughts before we get into today's passage all right, turning me to Mark 7. All right, we're going to be reading verses 1 to 23. It says, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. Actually, let's start in verse 54, 654. We'll start there. Because I think it's important for us to see that Jesus is gaining a certain kind of attention. Um, So it says in verse 54, as soon as the disciples and Jesus got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. The Pharisees and some teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So most of your hands are defiled in here, you guys. (laughs) The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they have their their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. That's part of the uh, the Ten Commandments. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. That's one that we have our kids memorize at home. <laughs> But you say that if anyone declares. <laughs> I'm kidding, you guys. I'm kidding. <laughs> but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Okay, hold up. I want to give some content to that c- context because I'm not doing the whole sermon on Corbin. Uh, Corbin was this idea that. Uh, Like today, today's day, we have something called like a living will or a living trust where you set up money towards a specific area, a specific place in need. So the church, uh, the temple at that point would invite people to give a portion or a large chunk of their estate or their money or their wealth to the temple for the temple's needs. Once it was in the temple, it was no longer yours to use. So if your parents are aging and they are in great need and you've given most of your income and most of your estate to the temple for God's work, but are neglecting your family members, then what is the bigger issue? Which one are you upholding more than the other? So one is good. Corbin is good. It's real good. Taking care of your parents is better. All right, let's keep going. Thus, 13, thus you nullify the work of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing, in, out, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about the parable. Are you so dull? I love that so much. I feel like Jesus asks me that a lot. Are you so dull, he asked Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality Theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. All right. So uh, let's walk through this a little bit here. Um, I think it's important to recognize that uh, Mark seems to casually mention the Pharisees in that first verse we read and how the Pharisees were from Jerusalem. And so for somebody who's paying attention to Mark's gospel here, the only time that we read of Jesus interacting with Jerusalem in his ministry is the week before his trial and his execution on the cross. So this is something that Mark is asking the reader to look ahead towards, to pay attention to what's happening here because it informs what will be happening in the future. There's these theological undertones that, that Mark wants the reader to see that um, Jerusalem, which was this holy city that housed the temple, the most holy space, most sacred space, that, that place and space was just that. It was a place and a space. It, it's, it's showing that God is not confined to a region or to a place or to a people. And Mark seems to hint at this, and, and he, he shows that, like, you're coming from Jerusalem because this is where God is moving. God is on the move elsewhere, that, that God is working out of a podunk town in Galilee with some disciples who probably barely finished high school. And I think Mark is trying to have the reader to see how this movement that Jesus is, is doing is causing tension because it's getting out there. It's getting out into the world. News was spreading all the way to, the Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, where the temple was, where the, where the most religious leaders spent most of their time. And, and they had to have heard about it, and they began to predict that this guy was disrupting their ways of living and how they needed to follow God. And it was such a big deal that they traveled 85 miles, which is like, what is that, six or seven days, five or six days if you're like really going quickly? They, they traveled those 85 miles from Jerusalem to Bethsaida near the Sea of Galilee to see what this guy is up to. And what they find is a rabbi, a rabbi means teacher, a rabbi who is very lenient with his students, with his disciples. A rabbi who isn't following the rules as expected. A rabbi who might even cause his followers to be just as lenient or maybe even more lenient than he is. This isn't Jesus' first interaction with the Pharisees, but it is his first interaction with Pharisees from Jerusalem. So to get to where we're going here, I want to kind of lay a foundation. This is something I've taught on before, so it could be familiar for a lot of you, but I think it's important for us to ground ourselves back into this space. And this is, uh, it starts in the very beginning where God created humanity and then humanity turned away from God and turned our eyes towards ourselves. And throughout the entire Bible, every story of scripture and in really our entire lives, it's this sense that God has desired to woo humanity back towards God's good ways of shalom. And shalom means, it's a Hebrew word for completeness or wholeness, the sense of all things made right. It's a sense of peace within yourself, within the relationship you have with other people, the relationship you have with the soil, with this earth, the creation, and the relationship you have with God, the sense of unbroken connection. So God chooses a group of people to bless. And this wasn't just to bless them, but he calls this group of people started with Abraham to be a blessing to other people, to bless others, to bring the goodness of God's shalom everywhere they go to all the people they encounter. And so where God's love and approval of all people would then spread to everyone and everything. And instead of where like greed and power and it was their God, instead it was mercy and goodness and justice would point them to God. And so God worked through Moses later on in the stories, worked through Moses to get together a certain way of living to remind the people about who God was. So all of these different things in the law of Moses, the 10 commandments is the most familiar, but there's so many different laws about how you dress and how you eat and how you, you spend your days. All of it wasn't to make life really sucky. It was to point our attention, everyone's attention back to shalom, back to the purposes of God. It was to reorient a person's life. And it wasn't just for them then. It's actually, it's for us today as well. These traditions we have, the ones that you guys mentioned, the different prayer rituals or receiving the wine and the bread, the body and blood of Christ, reading your Bible, singing songs together, reciting the Lord's prayer, um, raising your hands in worship, confession, even an organ, (laughs) kneeling and dancing, burning incense, praying with prayer beads or the rosary, crossing yourself. Waving flags, if you're really crazy and Pentecostal. (laughs) Laying prostrate, reciting the creeds. All of it, all the things I've even missed, all of it is meant to be tools to reorient our lives and our hearts back to the purposes and the love of the Father for all people. For the love of God for all of us. That is what those things are supposed to be used for. And all the details of of the tabernacle, which was a tent structure, like a tent church that was set up for the people of Israel, uh, the synagogues, which were more like a concrete sort of spaces, and the temple itself, all of those details were used with intention to point people back to the goodness and justice and love of God. But doing all of these things correctly and perfectly eventually became more important than the people they were meant to serve. Doing religion right and being seen as the most holy became more important than following God with what God had commanded. And what God commanded was to love mercy, to do justice, and to walk humbly with God. And I know we've all experienced this in some way or another. I catch myself doing this often where I will say more holy and righteous sounding things around people who might be more, who seem to be more religious than I am. I'll like try to meet their level and then like one up them or something like I got a quarter on God (laughs) and I, and I want, I want to be seen as more godly than I actually am. Or, or I find my sense of trying to prove myself to other people. Instead of simply being confident in God's approval of me, I easily seek the approval of other people. Instead of knowing that God's never going to leave me or forsake me, I try my best to be the best for all of you so you don't leave me or forsake me. And this way of living is not of God. It comes from a place of lack within myself where God is continually repositioning my heart back towards God, where my approval and and esteem is not found from you or from Instagram or anywhere else, but from God's approval of me alone. Yeah, yeah. And in those places of wanting to seem more holy, I find myself coming back to that pharisaical sort of a way, right? That way of the Pharisees. Those rules and laws that God gave Moses for all the people, it wasn't to hold them back. It wasn't to make life really hard, but we were to reorient their perspectives back to God and Shalom. And and there were these beliefs out there during this time that if everybody lived as perfectly and holy as possible, like if everybody followed the rules perfectly, then the Messiah would come. So it wasn't just like an internal thing for myself. I was responsible for the rest of you to make sure that you're doing it right so the Messiah would come. It was a very manipulative sort of a space in many regards. So there were rules placed upon rules, placed upon rules to make sure everybody lived as holy and perfectly as possible. And that included the washing of everything to make sure that everything was clean. And, and it was an area of intention that became a legalistic law. It became a burden, almost impossible to uphold, because it, it, meant to, it meant to, like, if you wanted to interact with people in the marketplace or around places where people of need gathered, like where Jesus was, he went to the marketplace, to the center of the town to be with these people. If you were around those places and you would accidentally became unclean, you would have to wash again. It was a major inconvenience. So it was easier to just avoid the needy and avoid the general public and just back away and insulate for the good of your holiness, for the good of convenience. But God is a God of new things. Always breathing new life and new perspective and new opportunity into things that we thought were dead for sure, including the old structures of the past. God breathes new life into your strained marriages. God breathes new life into parts of you that feel hopeless and uncertain. God breathes new life into religious structures and sometimes by reorienting them or refashioning them or helping tear down burdensome parts to remind people of how simple it's supposed to be to follow God. And I think that Jesus is this example of that breath of life. When asked about religious structures and the traditional aspects, Jesus said, well, his way, the way of God is actually easy and light, not something difficult and impossible. The way of Jesus is consuming, not difficult, impossible, but consuming in the way that Jesus demands all of you. You cannot follow God half-heartedly, and this is what Jesus was speaking towards. It's not about washing correctly or knowing all the Sunday school songs and being able to answer all the Bible questions right. It's not about reciting the Hail Marys if you're Catholic or lighting the right kind of candles for the right kinds of people or even raising your hands and worship. These are practices that can aid in your relationship with God, but they're just that, their aids in your relationship with God. So when doing outward and observable practices and right religious behavior becomes the focus, it's easy to pretend that everything within you is okay. When I'm always distracted by all the needs of what it means to follow God from an outsider's perspective, all the holiness, I am so much easier and able to hide. Jesus wasn't speaking against these intentional laws that help people turn their attention back to God. He was speaking about the heart of each person. That The the, the word for heart that Jesus uses here, it represents a person's core character and will. It it denotes uh, the center of all spirituality within a person. So your heart, according to Jesus, reveals the truth of who you are. Jesus wants us to understand how what lives in the core of you, what resides in you, what resides in your mind most of the time will eventually come out. And you might be able, like for an instance, you might be able to control your temper, but if frustration and bitterness live within you, this can fester into something that is difficult to control. Anger is if, if it's used in a wrong way, it can be used to manipulate, it can use, be used to control others and to harm other people, and it can create this sort of infection that spreads outwards. It doesn't just reside within you, it eventually comes out and affects people around you. Anger, if used well, can be used to bring about justice for the oppressed that actually creates healing that spreads instead of some sort of an infection that spreads. But both are contagious. It just, it just depends on how you've invited God into your life to help shape your heart and clean out anything that remains hidden. If you remember in the passage we read, it says that Jesus was, you know, he he calls them hypocrites. It says Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. And that word hypocrisy, uh, in those days, in the Greek, hypocrisy was a term that was used for the stage it meant an actor or it it literally means somebody who wears a a, a mask. So being a hypocrite meant that you were someone who was not fully seen, intentionally hiding. And I think this is true today. We hide all the time. Sometimes it's really simple where we're just like only putting the best parts of ourselves out on social media. So you have like 40 selfies that look really, really bad, but one is okay. So you put that out there. That's like the dumbest example for what it means to hide. But it's something that I think affects us a little bit more when it comes to vanity. Another sermon for another time. Maybe, maybe not. But there are times that we hide those dark places within ourselves because we are so ashamed and we are so afraid That if we're truly seen in the open, if all of our dark parts are revealed to those we love, we will be rejected by them. Allowing those areas of of envy or arrogance or greed, like just allowing them to stay hidden though, like festering within ourselves to allow lust a space and make a bed for it within our hearts, causes pain to ourselves and eventually will find its way out and will cause pain to other people. And these heart spaces can create a type of infection that spreads and is contagious around us. And it can cause harm to ourselves and to to other people, but it also causes harm to the kingdom of God, to the way that God has oriented this world. I've shared this story before, but a few years ago, I met someone when I was traveling with my friends and I was immediately drawn to this guy. Like I was drawn to him in a way that, that disturbed me and rattled me. And by grace, he lived on the other side of the country. But even though I never saw him after that time and only we, we connected for about a week on texting back and forth, he was taking up so much space in my heart. My thoughts were often on this man and no one knew it. It was hidden on the inside. I wasn't hurting anybody else. I knew that if I kept it hidden though, I knew that if I, if I left it in that space within my heart, if I allowed it to stay there for the long term, this desire for someone other than my husband would begin to fester and it would begin to grow. And at that time, it was so manageable. I wasn't hurting anyone, but given time, I might have made plans to take what was within me and then live it out. If I didn't reveal that truth of what was taking up space within me, it might overtake me. The most effective way Jesus can clean out those hidden spaces in your heart is by confessing it to another person or to a group of people. Like inviting people in as a space of accountability to you. Like this is what is growing within me and it's not of the Lord. So I, what I did is I is I called up a pastor friend of mine and I confessed it over her. I, I told her this hidden part of me and, and we wept together and we prayed together. And, and I wasn't met by her with shame and disappointment, but with grace. And then I confessed this hidden area of this part of mine to Jason. And again, I wasn't met with shame and disappointment. I was met with grace. And I confessed it to Jesus and I was met with grace. This kind of confession, it became this, its own kind of contagion that was used for healing instead of harm. My story is used for healing instead of harm. If I kept it within me, I don't know if we'd have a 13-year birthday today at Catalyst. Mm-hmm. Woo! That'll make me cry. Mm-hmm. The expectation in the time of Christ, the time that Mark was writing during that time, was that you would keep things hidden so you could always look healthy. That was the expectation then, and it is still the expectation today. I know that most of us grew up in a church where everyone dressed right, looked right, and always had a smile on their face. Man, the church needs to look like a place of, of broken-hearted and, and and just people that are vulnerable and willing to share that, hey, I'm struggling in my sense of willingness to survive. I'm struggling in my sense of, uh, in my marriage. I don't know if we're going to make it. I'm struggling in this friendship because she stabbed me in the back and I just don't know if I can ever forgive this person. And I don't know how to be real with people because I'm so afraid of it happening again. That is what the church is meant to look like. Jesus came to shatter those expectations of hiding and healthiness. And he says, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. Sin oftentimes Oftentimes the the way that we respond to sin is either hiding it or we oftentimes try to run away. So if something is happening in your life, then oftentimes it means you're not going to show up to church because you run away. And Jason and I are really good at being like, well, they're probably just busy. We're not very good at checking in all the time until you've been missing for a while. And I apologize for that. I never want to assume the worst, but oftentimes when I check in, it's been a really hard summer. It's been a really difficult life in our marriage. I lost a child. My, my grandmother was so sick. I've been caring for my mother. This is what's happening in my life, and yet we are so unwilling to share that with each other, and if I'm not willing to check in, and the rest of you aren't checking in, and you're not telling any of us, then we stay isolated and hidden, and we just stay in that own little spot of pain. The church was not designed To be that way. If you look at Acts 2.42, it's like the simple explanation of what the church is. It showed that they met together in each other's homes. In the vulnerability of each other's homes, they broke bread together. They got into God's word together. They shared resources with each other. If you know I can't pay my bills, I know that that you're going to help me pay it. I know that I'm going to share that I can't pay my bills and you will help pay that because that's what the church is meant to be for each other. Last thought. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking out the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about how that hidden sort of spaces in our lives, if we keep it hidden, eventually it will come out. And he said the only way that you can avoid that sort of thing is to cut it off. He says if your eye causes you to sin Tear it out! Don't really do that. It's a, its supposed to explain like just the amazing um, weight of what sin can do. If it's causing you, if you are—if you are in it, don't wait until you get your life together. Share it. Cut it out. Reveal it. All right, that's where we're going to end. So Jesus, let's pray. Jesus, um. I know that most of us in this room are have in the past or are carrying really heavy burdens. Uh, we, we, we've been living lives that um, where we try to numb or distract and, and try to avoid. So Lord, we pray that you will help us be the kind of church that can be honest and open with each other. I pray that we can confess things to you, not as a form of hand washing, but as a form of heart rending. We pray these things for your glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So I know I went long, y'all. It's like really.